Let's turn in our Bibles to John chapter 10, the book of John chapter 10. As you're turning there, I'd like to read uh, the Apostles' Creed for us. I think most of us, if not all of us, are familiar with this creed. And I'd like to begin by reciting it this morning and invite you to listen carefully to the words, I believe. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. And born of the Virgin Mary, he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Before I get to what I want to say about the creed, I better clarify something there. Uh, the Holy Catholic Church. Sadly, some good words get abused over, over the centuries. The word Catholic simply means universal. That's all it means. And please understand that the Apostles' Creed was around and was in use long before the Holy Roman Catholic Church ever appeared on the scene. Catholic just means universal. And so when I say I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, I'm simply saying I believe in the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, the church triumphant in heaven above and the church militant on earth below. That's not where I want to go with this this morning. What I want us to notice this morning, has, and, and, I, and, and I hope it, it has caught your attention when you have declared the Apostles' Creed in the past, is its structure. Have you ever thought about its structure? The structure is is, is purposeful. Uh, the structure is, is designed to actually declare the most central truth to the creed. This, creed. this creed declares many wonderful truths, many great truths, but the greatest, the most wonderful, is actually found in its structure. I believe in God, the Father Almighty. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. And I believe in the Holy Spirit. You see, the creed is Trinitarian in its structure. And the creed was actually developed as early as the second century, third century after Christ. And it was developed as a baptismal confession. And so when believers in the early church, when they professed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, they were saved, they were converted, and they entered the waters of baptism, they would recite this creed as their baptismal confession. Here I am about to be baptized before men and women. I am about to be baptized before the world publicly declaring, announcing my faith in God. Who is this God? I believe in the Father. I believe in the Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. That's my God. That's who I follow. 
That's who I claim to believe in. That is the one in whom I have placed my trust. And despite all of the surrounding religions and despite the mighty boot of the Roman Empire and despite the opposition and the persecution and despite all the paganism and the Gnosticism and the mysticism and everything surrounding me in this day and age, I stand before you to declare publicly, I believe in God triune. That's what the Apostles' Creed is all about. And that's what we're going to ponder together this morning. That our God is triune. That we worship the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, how are we going to do that this morning? Well, there's the challenge. And believe me, I have struggled with this one this past week and prayed much over it. And wrestled with how to, how to approach this, how to tackle this, how to present this. And I pray, I pray the Spirit of the Lord will, will bless this sermon this morning, bless it to our hearts, and really draw out, draw out our hearts in worship. And I, and I think the best way to approach it is simply by asking and answering three questions. That's all I'm going to do this morning. The first question is this, how do we explain the Trinity? How, how do I stand here before you this morning and explain the Trinity? When I say God is triune, what do I mean by that? I mean, after all, the word Trinity isn't even found in the Bible. And so what do I mean when I say God is triune and I believe in the Trinity? The second question is this. Why? Why do we believe in the Trinity? Isn't this simply the, the result, the product of, of man's overactive imagination? Isn't this simply the result of philosophical speculation gone wild? Why do we believe it? Why is it so important? Why is it so central? And then the third question is this. Why do we cherish the Trinity? Why do we cherish the Trinity? Why does this great revelation of God touch our hearts? Or why should it touch our hearts? And so those are the three questions that we're going to try to answer this morning. Again, number one, how do we explain the Trinity? Number two, why do we believe in the Trinity? And number three, why do we cherish the Trinity? So here we go. We'll begin with number one. Why or how rather? How do we explain the Trinity, this wondrous truth that God is triune? Well, that takes us to our text for this morning. And let me warn you at the outset, I'm going, to, I'm going to quote a number of scriptures this morning. I'm only going to ask you to turn to maybe two or three. Don't try to keep up with all of them or you'll probably get frustrated. But it's this... It's the sort of sermon, it's, a, it's the sort of word this morning where we really need to depend on God's word and draw from different sources, different texts throughout scripture. And so I, I'm going to be quoting numerous scriptures and just, just take note. I think I've, I think I've included some of the references on, on the bulletin there, the sermon outline. But the important thing is that you hear the word of God and what God himself declares or reveals concerning himself. But, but our basic text is found right here in John 10. Verse 30, where the Lord Jesus declares, I and the Father are one. Now let that sink in. I and the Father are one. Now notice two things in this verse. Uh, a little bit of a grammar, 
lesson, nothing too complex or difficult, but I hate to do it to us, but we need to see something of the grammar in this verse to feel the full weight of what Christ is saying. First of all, notice that the verb is in the plural. I and the Father are one. That's the first person plural. I am, you are, he is, we are, they are, right? This is the first person plural. We are. I and the Father are plural. That points to what? Distinction. That the Father and the Son are distinct from one another. It's the first thing we need to notice in this verse. The second thing we need to notice is the predicate. I and the Father are one. In contrast to the verb, the predicate is in the singular. Not only is it in the singular, but it is in the neuter. In Greek, there's masculine, feminine, and neuter. Here, it's in the neuter. And so we could actually translate this verse, Christ's statement, as follows. I and the Father are one thing. That's what he's saying. I and the Father are one thing. Or, as he states it at the end of verse 38, the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. And so in the verb, we have distinction, don't we? But in the predicate, what do we have? We have union. And so the Lord Jesus is actually saying two things in verse 30. First of all, he is saying, look, I and the Father are. We are distinct. But I want you to also understand this. I and the Father are one thing. We are actually the same. Now, if that's got you a little confused, that's okay. So the the Lord Jesus seems to be making a contradictory statement here. On the one hand, I and the Father are distinct. On the other hand, I and the Father am, we're the same, the same thing. Now this is confirmed elsewhere. Turn back. We didn't, we didn't pay too much attention to these verses when we were there. But turn back to chapter 8, still in John's Gospel. Chapter 8, and look with me at verse 42. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from, that is, I issued forth from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. And so in this verse, Christ claims to have been sent by God, and he claims to have come forth from God. And so again, he's making these two points, that on the one hand, he and the Father are distinct. But on the other hand, he and the Father are the same. Now, go in the other direction to chapter 14, still in John. Chapter 14, and look with me at verse 16. And here the Lord Jesus is again speaking. And I will ask the Father, again, that's John 14, verse 16, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I 
will come to you. And so here the Lord Jesus again claims, makes a claim. He's claiming that he will send the Spirit and at the same time he will come with the Spirit. Why? Because the same two truths are again evident. Christ is distinct from the Spirit. He sends him. But Christ and the Spirit are the same in that the coming of the one is necessarily the coming of the other. Now, have you grasped those two truths? This is central. This is pivotal to our understanding of the Trinity. That when we speak of God, the Father, God, the Son, and God, the Holy Spirit, we have these two basic truths before us. That God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are distinct. And God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are the same. How do we explain that? We we explain it as follows. We declare that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are distinct persons. They communicate with one another. They relate to one another. And yet we also affirm that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are only one being. Substance is another word that has been used. Nature is another word. Essence is another word. And so we have this great truth that God is tri Un. Tri means three. This is Latin. Tri, three. Un or une, one. God is triune. God is three in one. Three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. There is distinction within them and among them. They communicate, they relate one to the other. But they are three in one in that they all share the one essence, the one being, God himself. And so the Athanasian Creed declares, we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity without either confusing the persons. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. They are distinct. We do not confuse the persons. But nor do we divide the substance. We do not have three gods. Thus the Father is God. The Son is God. The Spirit is God. And yet there are not three gods. But there is one God. Now that is a humbling truth, isn't it? That makes me feel kind of small this morning. It makes me feel small because that's, that's all I can give you folks. This is the greatest truth of the Christian faith, the doctrine of the Trinity. And that's basically as far as I can explain it. We have entered into the realm of a mystery, of something that is beyond human comprehension. That frustrates us. It frustrates me. Why? Because all of us have the little rationalist lurking somewhere in the back of our minds. Well, well, I want an explanation. I want to be able to understand it. I want to be able to answer all the questions. I want to be able to fully comprehend it and put God in a box. We can't do it. 
And despite all of Augustine's philosophical speculation, right through to Jonathan Edwards' philosophical speculation, believers, unbelievers alike, they have, they have tried to go beyond the realm of Scripture in describing, explaining, articulating this doctrine, but we can't do it because we have entered into the realm of something that, simply put, is far bigger than us. Let me add a word here. And there, there isn't an, an analogy in the world that will help us understand the doctrine of the Trinity. I remember being in Sunday school class as a child, and it was the egg. That was the popular thing in my day. I don't know if you've ever heard that one. The yolk, the white, and the shell. There's the Trinity. Oh, the Trinity's nothing like that, folks. God is nothing like an egg. If I think an egg helps me understand God triune, no, then I really don't understand God triune. We've heard, others have referred to, to, to water and vapor and ice and others to, to, to speech and to thought and to love. And men and women have tried to latch on to so many different analogies from nature to try to make heads or tails out of this wondrous doctrine. We're not intended to make heads or tails out of this doctrine. We are meant to prostrate ourselves before this great God who in his very essence and being defies human understanding and human explanation. That he is God triune, three in his personhood, Father, Son, and Spirit. And yet there is only one God, one being, the one true living God. So that's how we explain. That's how we explain the Trinity. The second question, in order is as follows. Why do we believe in the Trinity? Well, I, I hope I've already answered that question to some extent. It's because it's what we find in the Bible. Uh, we haven't entered into the realm of human speculation here. Uh, the doctrine of the Trinity, as some historians would try to have us believe, that the doctrine of the Trinity is a byproduct of the Council of Nicaea during the reign of Emperor Constantine. Nothing... Nothing could be further from the, from the truth. God triune is not a result of, of, of philosophy or human thinking or anything like that. It, it flows from Scripture's testimony. It flows from what God says about himself in his holy word. And so God makes it clear in the Bible that he is the only God. Deuteronomy 6, 4, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Psalm 86, 10, you alone are God. Isaiah 46, 9, I am God and there is no other. 1 Corinthians 8, 4, there is no God but one. And so the Westminster Shorter Catechism asks, are there more gods than one? And it answers, there is but one only the living and true God. The Bible makes that clear. But the Bible also makes it perfectly clear that this God dwells in eternity, in Father, in Son, and in Holy Spirit. Let me demonstrate that to you in three ways. And I think I've included this in the bulletin on the outline to help you, help you along here, because I know this is, this is difficult to follow. This is, uh, this is taxing on our minds, isn't it? Let me move slowly here. First of all, when it comes to the doctrine of the Trinity, this wonderful truth, we need to understand that the Old Testament prepares for it. By that I mean that the Old Testament lays the foundation for this truth. 
the Old Testament, when it comes to God revela- God's revelation, is, is sort of like an, an attic. If you have an attic in your house or a cellar, you open up the door, you go in, you close the door, you find yourself in pitch blackness. What do you see? Nothing. You can't even see the hand in front of your face. Completely dark. You switch on the light. Then what do you see? Well, old school yearbooks, old photo albums, old clothes, old suitcases, spiders and creepy crawlies and all these other things you wished you didn't know about. Then you see everything once the light is on. When the light was off and you couldn't see all of that stuff, was it still there? Of course it was there. It was always there. It's just you couldn't see it because of the darkness. The light went on, you saw it. The Old Testament is sort of like that. The Old Testament standing alone contains many precious truths, many wonderful truths. But when it comes to the central truths of the Christian faith, for example, the doctrine of the Trinity, we only see these clearly in the Old Testament in the light of the New Testament. And that's why Paul can declare that the mystery, the mystery was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. You see, Scripture is a progressive revelation. The truths begin as seeds in germinal form and they begin to blossom as we move out of the Pentateuch into the prophets and they come to full bloom, full flower in the New Testament. And we see that, for example, in the case of the doctrine of the Trinity. It's there in the old, but it isn't blatantly obvious. But the old does indeed prepare for the doctrine of the Trinity. Let me give you a number of examples how. First of all, it uses plural names for God. We go back, we read the Old Testament, we find God's name Elohim, or we find Adonai. These are actually plural names, which allow for this idea of plurality in unity. Secondly, it uses plural pronouns for God. Isaiah 6, 8, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? It makes distinctions. The Old Testament makes distinctions within God. Psalm 45, verse 6. Your throne, O God, is forever. Simple enough. Your throne, O God, is forever. God, your God. Two gods? No. Plurality acting in unity. God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. The Old Testament uses threefold formula in worship. Number six, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. It points to a triad of persons closely associated with God. Isaiah 61.1, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me. It speaks of the role of the Word of God and the Spirit of God in the works of God. Psalm 33, 6. By the Word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of His mouth all their host. And so the Old Testament, again, let me affirm it, 
The Old Testament prepares for the doctrine of the Trinity. Secondly, the Lord himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, reveals the doctrine of the Trinity. He reveals it by virtue of his incarnation. The incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ is the revelation, the unfolding of the doctrine of God triune. We see it at his birth. Luke 1.35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, the angel's words to Mary, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. We see it at his baptism. Matthew 3, verse 16, when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And we see it at his ascension when he declares to his disciples, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the names of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Is that what it says? No, you're to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name. One name, singular. The name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. The watershed moment of the Old Testament is Exodus chapter 3. When God reveals his name to Moses, I am who I am. The watershed moment of the New Testament is Matthew 28. When the Lord Jesus tells us God has a name, here's his name, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And there we have the revelation of the doctrine of the Trinity. And not only does the Lord reveal it, but thirdly, the New Testament confirms it. Confirms it through and through. Paul, Peter, James, John, Jude, they constantly use this Trinitarian language. I'll give you but one example because it's on your minds because we've been there in our care groups on Wednesday nights. Ephesians chapter 4, there is one Spirit. There is one Lord. And there is one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. You see, the doctrine of the Trinity, despite what we hear today, it is not the product of man's fanciful imagination. It is not the product of a bunch of Greek philosophers who sat around and worked themselves up into some kind of a frenzy and came up with this confusing schema to explain God. No, the doctrine of the Trinity is simply sincere, humble believers seeking to be honest with Scripture, seeking to be honest with what God says about himself in Scripture. And through Scripture, they arrive at this glorious fundamental, foundational truth. Yet, yes, there is but one God. Amen. And yet this God exists in eternity in three distinct persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That brings us now to the third question. Why do we cherish the Trinity? Why do we cherish the Trinity? In other words, why should it uh, touch our hearts? Why should it... uh, Excite us. Why is it something we should meditate upon? 
Why is it something we should celebrate? Why is it a cause for, for worship? I mean, up until this point, I, I know all that I've said has been, has been somewhat cerebral. And some would even say somewhat irrelevant, somewhat unpractical. Nothing could be further from the truth. If this is how God reveals himself to be in Scripture, then one of our greatest desires should be to know the triune God. It should be to know what God says about himself. And so why, why do we cherish this truth? We cherish it firstly because it is foundational. When we speak of the Trinity, we are not being academically picky, nor are we being theologically fussy. We are simply seeking to know our great God. It is a foundational truth. If I, if I am not worshiping God as he reveals himself in the Bible, If I am not worshiping God according to his own name, if I am not worshiping God triune, then what am I worshiping? All I am left with is an idol. This is foundational. It is fundamental to the Christian faith. How, oh, how we need to hear that today. Not long before moving down here to Glen Rose, I was in a discussion somewhat of a Heated discussion, I guess, heated debate with a professing Christian, an individual who was on this hobby horse of, oh, this doctrine is so impractical, who cares, couldn't give two cents worth. All that matters is that we love each other, try our best, live by the golden rule and not bog people down with all of these theological niceties. Sounds great on paper, but it's really gibberish when you stop and think about it. Because if God has made himself known, And if God has revealed himself to us and said, hey, this is who I am and this is what I am like, then it is our utmost responsibility. It is our utmost duty. It should be our utmost delight to know him as he has declared himself to be and to worship him according to his own revelation. This is foundational. This is fundamental. The second reason we cherish the Trinity is as follows. It's an exceptional truth. Exceptional. It distinguishes Christianity from all other religions. Lots of talk today about the ecumenical movement. Lots of talk today about the three great theistic religions of Judaism and Islam and Christianity coming together, laying aside their differences, simply focusing on the common denominator that we are called to love one another. But here's here's the thing. There are no points of contact between Christianity and Judaism. There are absolutely no points of contact between Christianity and Islam. We share nothing in common. with any other religion on the face of this earth. Why? Because we worship the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Jews do not. The Muslims do not. There is no other religion under heaven that worships God as he has declared himself to be other than the Christian faith. This past week, I was was reminded of this. I I take a glance at the... uh, Toronto Star, which is a 
a newspaper, obviously back in Toronto. I try to keep up on the, the happenings. Sometimes I wish I, I didn't, but I do. This past week, maybe you didn't know it, former Presidents uh, Clinton and Bush were in Toronto for a, for a Q&A period. And as usual, uh, President Bush vilified in the press. Vilified for a number of reasons, foremost vilified for his religious beliefs. And again, there are the, the commentaries, there are the articles that it is time to set aside any absolutist religion. It is time for us to, to, to scrutinize and to, to villainize and to, and to basically label as evil any religion that would dare stand up and assert that it has absolute truth. This has been at the source of man's problems throughout history. This is the source of all that ails the world today and society in general. If only we would realize that there is no absolute. They are all the same in the final analysis. Well, brothers and sisters, that is irreconcilable with Scripture. If that's, if that's my opinion this morning, I might as well just pack it in and go home. If there is no absolute truth, there is no truth. And someone, pray tell, what are we doing? God has declared his will. God has revealed his person. And he has given us that revelation in his word. And he has told us that he has a name. And his name is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I will stand here this morning and I will state it without making an apology. I will state it without qualifying it. I will state it as our brothers and sisters in the early church stated it in that creed whenever they recited it, that I believe in the Father. I believe in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I believe in the Holy Spirit. It is an exceptional truth. The third reason we cherish the Trinity is as follows. It is a personal truth, very personal. The religions of the world go in one of two extremes, and in doing so, they err. Some religions stress the fact that God is infinite and transcendent, for example, Islam. Other religions emphasize the fact that God is personal and Imminent, such as Hinduism, and they go in, in one of these two extremes. And this really struck me last summer as I had the opportunity to visit both the United Arab Emirates and Nepal. The United Arab Emirates is long. This, this idea of God as transcendent, far removed, out of touch with, with man. And then in Nepal, Hinduism, this idea that God is imminent and is in, in everything and everything is in him and everything is God. There is confusion in both extremes. And Christianity is the only religion that has a God who is both transcendent and imminent. He is indeed the God who dwells in unapproachable light. And he is the God who has incarnated himself becoming one with his creatures in their humanity, that we might enjoy fellowship with him. And as we read in 1 John 1, 3, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. 
That's wonderful. But listen to what he says next. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We need to hear that today. I dare say, there you have the source of abundant life. And there you have the answer to every conceivable problem that ails us. Rosetta recently gave me a loan of a couple of volumes of A.W. Tozer's sermons. And I noted something that A.W. Tozer wrote. He says, for millions of Christians, and I pray this isn't true of anyone here this morning, for millions of Christians, professing Christians, God is no more real than he is to the non-Christian. Oh, the instant cure, the instant cure of most of our ills would be to enter God's presence, to become suddenly aware that we are in fellowship with God and that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit is in communion with us. This is a personal truth. How dare I say Oh, how unpractical, the doctrine of the Trinity. This is the most practical stuff going, friend. That there is a great God who can, who can come near to us. A transcendent God, a sovereign God, the creator of the heavenlies above, the creator of the earth, everything that has ever existed, the one who is holy in his essence, almighty in his works, the one who defies explanation that this God, the Son, has become a man. And by the Spirit of God brings me into union with Him that I might enjoy fellowship. The fellowship of the Godhead Himself. The fellowship, the mutual delight, and the mutual love that is eternally between Father, Son, and Spirit. I am invited to participate in that. Friend, Christian, do you know anything of it? These just vague notions to us. Just empty rhetoric. Yeah, I believe that. Have we known it to be true? That we've been called to fellowship with God Almighty. And delight in God, triune. Oh, what a personal, wonderful truth. Fourth reason we cherish the Trinity is as follows. It is an essential truth. Listen to the words of 1 Peter 1. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. That's the gospel. The gospel is, and you've seen it in Ephesians 1, the Father chose us before the foundation of the world, that the Son has come into this world and has purchased us, redeemed us, laid down his life for us, that we may, might know the forgiveness of our sins. And the Spirit has come into our hearts, thereby applying the work of the Son making us one with the triune God so that all the privileges and the benefits and the blessings of the gospel are ours. That is an essential truth. 
Dr. Packer writes, all, all non-Trinitarian formulations of the gospel are by biblical standards inadequate and indeed fundamentally false and will naturally tend to pull Christian lives out of shape. We have a gospel upon which we pin all of our hopes. We have a gospel that we declare to the nations. And this gospel is that the Father has worked before the foundation of the world, that the Son has entered time as a man and purchased our redemption, and that the Son sends forth the Spirit to accomplish that eternal covenant of redemption by bringing His people to salvation. That is the gospel. And that is an essential truth. The fifth reason we cherish the Trinity is because it is a missional truth. The Father sends the Son to redeem His people. The Son sends the Spirit to regenerate and to seal His people. And the Father and the Son and the Spirit send His people to proclaim His glory to the nations. Why is a team going to China this week? What are they doing? Why did we have a planning session for VBS this morning and planning that outreach at the end of July? What is it all about? It is a Trinitarian mission. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit have this eternal covenant. The Father has chosen, the Son redeems, and the Spirit regenerates and seals. And then the triune God has commissioned his people, his church, his bride to go forth to proclaim that message. And to do what? To baptize and to make disciples in whose name? In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. When we're involved in missions, when we're involved in outreach, do you know what one of our primary goals is? It is to make little Trinitarians. It is to make followers of God triune. That is our mission. We have been sent forth to glorify this God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And we've been sent forth as an extension of His own activity, His own mission, His own eternal purpose. And how that gives me perspective. How that gives me a little impetus, a little shot in the arm. How that gives me such such great perspective as I consider my own calling and responsibility and desire to fulfill this mission, that I might do so with this purpose utmost in mind to bring eternal glory to the great God whose name is Father, Son, and Spirit. And the sixth and final reason why we cherish this truth is as follows. It is, simply put, delightful. It is delightful. It is a cause of awe and reverence. Awe and reverence. Awe and reverence toward the Father. Awe and reverence toward the Son. And awe and reverence toward the Spirit. There is no such thing as subordination when it comes to God triune. Let me repeat that. There is no such thing as subordination when it comes to God triune. The language of subordination in Scripture, the Son subordinate to the Father, the Spirit subordinate to the Father and the Son, 
That is the language of the plan of redemption. That is the language of Christ's humiliation. But within the Godhead, there is no subordination. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are co-equal, co-eternal, and co-essential. And we worship this great God. We worship Him in our deeds, seeking to live for His glory. And we worship Him in our words, seeking to proclaim His glories one to another and to the nations that He has created and placed on this earth. That's what we're going to do this morning as we conclude. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up right now. And as they're coming, I'd like to share a quote with you from B.B. Warfield. And then we're going to pray, we're going to sing, we're going to hear the benediction. And I want you to notice the emphasis upon the Trinity in these things. And we're going to continue in our worship this morning by praising our great God. B.B. Warfield writes, When we have said these three things, that there is but one God, that the Father and the Son and the Spirit is each God, and that the Father and the Son and the Spirit is each a distinct person, we have enunciated the doctrine of the Trinity in its completeness. And all that is left is worship. So I'm going to ask you to bow with me now and I'm going to lead us in worship, in prayer. And then the worship team is going to lead us in worship in a glorious hymn. And then Chris is going to conclude our time in worship with the benediction. And so every head bowed, every eye closed and think these great thoughts of God as we pray together. Heavenly Father, blessed Son, eternal Spirit, I adore Thee. As one being, one essence, one God and three distinct persons for bringing sinners to your knowledge and to your kingdom. Oh, Father, you have loved me and sent Jesus to redeem me. Oh, Jesus, you have loved me and assumed my nature. Shed your own blood to wash away my sins. Wrought righteousness to cover my unworthiness. Oh, Holy Spirit, you have loved me. And entered my heart and planted their eternal life. Reveal to me the glories of Jesus. Three persons and one God, I bless and praise you. For love so unmerited, so unspeakable, so wondrous, so mighty to save the lost and raise them to glory. O triune God, who commands the universe. You have commanded me to ask for those things that concern your kingdom And my soul, let me live and pray as one baptized into the threefold name.